1: Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. If you've been waiting for elective surgery, be prepared for a long wait. We learned this past week it will take more than a year and a half to clear the backlog of operations at Ontario hospitals that were postponed because of the pandemic. A new study published in the Canadian Medical Association Journal found the province had a backlog of more than 148,000 surgeries between March and June of this year. If hospitals add 717 patients a week to the roughly 11,000 weekly surgeries they typically performed before the pandemic, researchers expect it will take 84 weeks to clear the excess. Joining Libby Zneimer to discuss, Dr. Janet Martin, Associate Professor at the Schulich School of Medicine and Dentistry at Western University, who's been involved with a global team of researchers looking into the long-term impact of the pandemic on surgeries, along with Dr. Shaf Kashabji, Director of the Toronto Lung Transplant Program and Surgeon-in-Chief at the University Health Network
2: in dealing with the backlog the urgent cases like cancer and cardiac surgery uh, were dealt with um, more in real time with some slight delays but but not uh, a lot and i think that that uh, is really important and what has happened is the less uh if you would, would urgent surgeries got delayed further and that's the backlog calculation Which uh, this paper says, if if we only add a little bit more extra capacity, it's going to be over 80 weeks before you can catch up.
3: Dr. Martin, uh, you're involved in a global study. So how do we compare to other countries, other Western countries in, in terms of postponed surgery?
4: Yeah. So we, as the um, COVID Surge Collaborative, took a look at a the very same question. So, how many elective surgeries were canceled or deferred during a twelve-week peak COVID shutdown period? And we looked at this over one hundred and ninety countries around the world, and modeled to to estimate if you know if we have these rates of cancellation, how many surgeries will actually be cancelled or delayed, and then what would be the amount of time required in order to catch up? And it's interesting because even though we used national numbers and we used a different method of modelling, our numbers came out just about exactly the same. So we looked at, at, uh, for example, how many surgeries across Canada would be cancelled, and over a 12-week peak COVID period. And we estimated about 395,000 in Canada with an estimated 11 months to 24 months to catch up on the backlog if we could increase our capacity by 10 to 20%, which is exactly the same number of the approximate, um, almost getting close to two years, that's estimated in this study for Ontario alone. Comparing ourselves to other countries, we're very similar in terms of the estimates of time to, uh, to deal with the backlog. What is becoming more apparent it now, and um, bear in mind that we did this study at the beginning of the pandemic and in the early stages of the pandemic, so now in retrospect, I think we could more finely tune the differences between countries. Some countries were more hard-hit uh, than others, and Canada... So far has not um, borne the full brunt of what COVID can inflict on um, the healthcare uh, workforce, as well as PPE, as well as our beds. So we may actually be in a better stead. And it's true in my conversations with colleagues around the world, Canada moved sooner, as did Ontario especially, most sooner to a state of actually reopening and re-engaging the ramp up to have better throughput for elective surgeries. Okay,
3: Doctor Kashavji, anything you want to leave us with on this?
2: No, I'm I'm really glad you're covering this, and and you know we had sort of looked at one is how do we slow down? What do we slow down with? And then how do we pick up again? And and I think we've done it in a, a thoughtful way, but. The backlog is, is there and it's looming and I don't, like in the heat of COVID, it was okay to postpone people with benign conditions, but it's not okay to add a year wait time onto a hip or things like that. So I do think we in the system have to figure out a way to address those patients.
1: Dr. Shav Kashevji, Director of the Toronto Lung Transplant Program and Surgeon-in-Chief at the University Health Network, and Dr. Janet Martin, Associate Professor at the Schulich School of Medicine and Dentistry at Western University. This is Zuma Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. When was the last time you were called for jury duty? Serving on a jury is our civic duty, but the call usually sends working people scrambling to avoid it. Most private companies do not pay employees on jury duty, and the prospect of being stuck without income on a long trial is daunting. And for businesses, so is the possibility of losing key staffers for weeks or months. These issues are on top of the question of being exposed to graphic and gruesome testimony and evidence for an extended period of time. And then there is the concern to avoid the courts in the midst of this pandemic. Jury advocates are calling on the government to hike jury compensation to one hundred twenty dollars a day and to increase mental health support. Two of those advocates are Tina Danzer, a juror for the Paul Bernardo trial, an experience that affected her profoundly, and Mark Farrant, CEO of the Canadian Juries Commission. They joined Libby to discuss these issues on Wednesday.
5: Jury pay is, um, shamefully low across the country and in almost all provinces and territories. And jury duty should not be, um, uh, a financial burden for anybody, nor should it also be a barrier for participation in our justice system and our democracy. Um, it's the last form of mandatory civic duty left in our society, and it's, it's enshrined in our form of rights and human freedoms in the criminal code. So it shouldn't be a barrier for someone because they can't afford to do it and it has been for decades for so many people um, who simply just could not afford it because they worked in certain sectors of the economy that had uh, tenuous employment. Um, or, as you know, employers are not obligated to maintain your salary and uh, as, a, as, uh, as a juror. They're, they're obligated to maintain your job. You cannot be fired for serving on a jury, but they're not obligated to pay you. And um, it's time now, Especially given the pandemic and unemployment and job insecurity and so many Canadians experiencing financial issues, it's time to raise jury pay to, to 120 per day, um, which is minimum wage. Um, and that will increase participation in, in a time where we know that there's underrepresentation on juries for the Indigenous communities. Duty for, for uh, uh, Black Canadians and for diversity. This is an opportunity to bring in new voices that have been shut out from jury duty.
3: In the meantime, uh, uh, I'll say hello to Tina. So you want to raise it to 120 a day. What What is it now?
6: Currently in Ontario, it's $0 from day 1 to day 10. Then it goes to $40 <clears throat> until day 49. And then it goes to $100. But think about uh, the senior citizens. So they, they are a large portion of who sits on the jury because first they have the time, and second, you know, maybe they are collecting a pension, so they're not so worried. But as a juror, if you live in the city of Toronto and you have to drive downtown to the courthouse every day and park your car, let's call it $25. If you're on a four-month trial, that's $2,000 after tax out of your pocket for someone who's on a fixed income. And really, that's just the parking. Never mind, you know, you've got to get yourself a lunch while you're there because you're there the entire day. So these are all these are all expenses out of your own pocket. And, you know, everybody who is attending in that courthouse is 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 getting paid for the job that they're doing. And while this is not a job per se, it is something that the government is demanding of you because it is your civic duty, and you should be proud to do it, but it shouldn't be at your own expense.
3: The Ontario government has said that it has no intention of raising jury fees. Correct. How are you hoping to change their minds? (laughs)
6: We just keep trying. We keep pushing because we feel it's a fair thing to ask for. And, and it is one of, you know, in 2017, Mark and I, several other jurors and some uh, mental health experts appeared in Ottawa in front of the Human Rights Committee on Justice. And out of that came a year long study And in 2018, the government released uh, 11 recommendations to improve jury duty, and that is one of the recommendations. So this comes straight from the government. It was a request we made, but they recommended that it happen, and yet to this day, it has not been adopted into policy
1: former juror Tina Danzer and Mark Ferrant, CEO of the Canadian Juries Commission. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fightback. On Wednesday, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau made his first public comments about the steady stream of allegations against Governor General Julie Payette. He defended her, calling Julie Payette an excellent Governor General and shutting down any speculation about replacing her. A consulting company has been brought in to conduct a third-party investigation into allegations she created a toxic work environment and publicly humiliated staffers, prompting some to quit. There has also been controversy about some of her costly renovations and her pushback against some of the duties and appearances associated with the position. Libby Snymer was joined by a panel of experts to discuss the issue. Nora jenkins Townsend, founder and principal of human resources firm Bright and Early. Anushka Zachariah, associate at Howard Levitt LLP. And Dr. Barbara Messamore, an associate professor of history at the University of Fraser Valley and author of a book about Canada's Governors General.
7: In Ontario, there's an obligation for an employer to investigate harassment that's been brought to their attention. So that could be through a complaint or it could just be, you know, they could become aware of it through another way. So I'm not surprised at all that they brought in an outside firm here. I, I do think that uh, there has been more media attention on these cases lately, especially with, you know, the Me Too movement, um, you know, In Canada and and in the US as well. I think there's a lot more discussion of it, which I think is important to happen.
3: Anushka, what's your view of this?
7: Uh, There definitely have been more workplace investigations,
8: which I think is appropriate given looking at the employer versus employee relationship, with the employee, of course, being the vulnerable party for the most part. So having the opportunity to express your concerns, make your complaints and have your employer do a thorough and proper investigation is um, moving us in the right direction, for sure.
3: Is it just a matter that the standards have changed?
8: Yes, I think so, and I think the standards needed to be changed. You know, your boss shouldn't be yelling at you just because it was commonplace before doesn't mean it should have been happening then, and it certainly shouldn't be happening now. So allowing employees to, like I said, express themselves and have that sort of behavior come to an end is, right and it's appropriate.
3: I'm going to bring in Barbara Messamore. How embarrassing is this to have this all play out in public with the Governor General's office?
9: Yeah, you raise an excellent point. I mean, it adds a dimension of complexity because this is meant to be a very dignified office, and anything that happens in this very public way uh, can't help but tarnish it, right? So I think one of the things that's perhaps a little different about um, the Vice Regal office is that Typically, whatever is done is done discreetly. I think that um, there would be, if it came down to it, a discreet conversation between the prime minister and the governor general, and, the, uh, and an announcement that the governor general had opted to, be re- to, to resign. It wouldn't be a um, a messy kind of public firing. I, you know, I think it's also it's all very interesting that um, one of the other things that's distinct about this office is that. They don't defend themselves. If there's going to be any defense made, it uh, has to come from the government of the day, and that again isn't about protecting the person; it's about protecting the dignity of the office. Now, you know, you'll know, of course, that that Christian Freeland, would ask very pointedly, had declined to do that a few weeks ago, and um, Justin Trudeau, of course, now recently, uh, just last day has uh, has given a defense of her, called her an excellent governor general. And, and um, you know, the, the other thing I just want to get in here is that he used the term constitutional crisis, suggesting that, it, you know, if she were asked to step down or something, that would be a crisis. And I, I just want to get on the table that that's simply not true. You know, there, the uh, um, the role would be filled in, in any gap here by the um, uh, chief justice and it's important to kind of have somebody who's got credibility and an appearance of impartiality.
3: Is there an element of perhaps sexism here, Nora? Yeah. So, you know, while I agree that, you know,
7: a lot of the time women in power are held to different standards, I think without knowing the, the exact facts uh, of the invest- investigation and, you know, what was apparently said to, to these employees, it, it's hard to comment on this particular case. But I think generally, you know, as Anushka was saying before, uh, you know, generally, we don't want to be yelling at employees or, you know, causing them to apparently, you know, leave the office in tears. Uh, not only is it poor form, but, you know, it's not motivating for people. Um, it's been proven that building an environment of psychological safety leads to higher level of engagement and actually higher performance. So those old school ways, um, whether they're done by, you know, a man or, or a woman of, you know, motivating through fear uh, is not only just unkind, but usually ineffective. Anushka, what would you like to leave us with? Well, for
8: employees, if you have something that is concerning that's happening in your workplace, definitely make the complaint and report it. It's imperative to have those investigations completed. So that's what I would say for sure.
7: And Nora? I would say, um, you know, that it sends us a strong message if harassment is found in an investigation and the person's allowed to stay in power no matter what. You're sending a strong message that that kind of behavior is okay in, in your workplace
1: Nora jenkins Townsend, founder and principal of Human Resources Firm, Bright and Early. Anushka Zachariah, associate at Howard Levitt LLP. And Dr. Barbara Messamore, an associate professor of history at the University of Fraser Valley. This is Zuma Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Are you buying and wasting more food during the pandemic? A new survey finds that Canadian households may be tossing an average of 13.5% more food than they were before the COVID 19 crisis. That adds up to 2.3 kilograms, or just over five pounds of food, a week and a cost of about $2,000 a year for each household. Libby was joined by Sylvain Charlebois, senior director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University, to find out why Canadians are wasting so much food.
10: When we got the results uh, of our uh, of our report, we did validate with certain cities around the country, uh, checking in, uh, seeing if, if they've seen an increase in, in composting when they, when they go around houses and they have actually. So there's, we're generating more waste in volume, 13.5%. It brings up the, the, this invisible bill of food waste of over $2,000. It's food waste is that one bill you never receive, but still have to pay every day. (laughs) So $2,000. Uh, so it's, so the COVID, the COVID effect is, is worth about $238 in total. So we are wasting a lot. But here's the thing, and this is the good news part. Uh, we believe because of the volume of food going into people's homes, proportionally, we're not sure we're wasting more. Uh, we may actually be wasting less because we're not going to the restaurant as much. And so... Yes, the volume has gone up, but it doesn't necessarily mean that as a community, as a society, uh, Canadians overall are wasting more. And when you think about food service, for example, I mean, some of the restaurants out there do generate a lot of waste pre-COVID. For example, buffet-style restaurants—they're—they're. Uh, they're that's Agent over a lot of waste they're they're all idle right now i mean uh frankie's tomato just closed last week i believe that's one example of of restaurants that would generate a whole lot of waste but don't right now which is uh which is certainly good news um we have seen some changes in behavior as well since the start of covid i think a lot of people are still uh very nervous about uh about seeing kids going back to school, uh, thinking about a potential second wave, there are still a lot of uncertainties. Uh, I suspect that the landscape will look very differently after the holidays. Uh, I think uh, after nine months into this pandemic, nine ten months, I think we're we will be getting more comfortable, uh, but not only that. We'll, we'll actually have new habits, and this is this is kind of what's going on right now in our own kitchen uh, with food waste and and how we manage our our cupboards, freezer, fridge. we we have new routines. We have new habits. We don't necessarily realize that the average, so the majority of Canadians actually are going to the grocery store only. Once a week, 52%. Uh, before COVID, the majority of cases went twice a week at the grocery store. So that's why, that's why you, you, you know planning has been an issue. We, we didn't plan before. Now we have to.
3: Sylvain Charlebaugh, what would you like to leave us uh, with on this? What should we do to save that $2,000?
10: Yeah. So first of all, uh, don't be discouraged by by uh, the numbers we we released. Uh, yeah, the volume is up, but we're 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 spending more time at home, and so I think just continue on uh, your journey of becoming a better food inventory manager at home. Uh, be aware what you have. Be aware what you need. When you show up at the grocery store, don't buy too much. Uh, don't hoard especially hoarding is just haw- awful. Uh, everyone pays for that. And so you don't want to do that again. There's a second wave. Be careful, be patient, and trust the food supply as much as you can. And uh, and you'll be fine.
1: Sylvain Charlebois, Senior Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back, Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. Here are some of this week's best calls. John phoned from Peterborough to talk about food waste during the pandemic.
9: I rarely
5: go into the town to get anything. If I get a bag of potatoes only because they're cheaper to buy by the bag and if they're new, I use them up. And then I put them in freezer bags and I put them away. I have a garden. I have not bought a vegetable for a long time because you can freeze a lot more than people think they
4: can freeze. You just don't know how to do it.
1: Mary Lynn called from Lindsay about the terrible situation her friend is in as a result of COVID-19.
4: I have a very close friend who was supposed to have tumors removed from both her lungs in January and she's in the operating room as we speak. It's I don't understand at all. Like, uh, you've got to prioritize, but um, so the decisions to make the backlog bigger, did it come from the government? Did the doctors have any input? I would say tumors in a lung, both lungs, would be, should not, She's not even retirement
1: age yet. I'm praying real hard.
0: And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week.
1: In fact, there were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Brian in Caledon, who says he really feels for small business owners during the COVID 19 crisis.
5: I feel sorry for the Kit Kat. I'm a nervous subscriber, and since the pandemic and everything's closing up, I haven't been able to go there. We used to go there once a month, and I feel sorry for Al. I really do. We try and, I live near Georgetown, we try and go to some of the small restaurants that we do take out Wednesday, that type of thing. That thing was the closing of Tucker's Marketplace. We used to go there quite often for birthdays, celebrations, and I have still $200 in gift cards for Tucker's Marketplace. Now I can't use
1: that does it for this week's best of fight back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at FightbackLibby and have your say anytime on our Fight Back voicemail at 416 367 9636 416 I'm Jane Brown Join me tomorrow on Labor Day for a brand new Fight Back and then again next weekend when we'll round up The Best of Fight Back
0: The Best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi with technical production by Kelly Robotham Executive producer Moses Nimer